So I am joined now by Dr. Daniel Kroger and the Reverend Nikki Moreno Howard for our conversation about communion um, in the Catholic Church and in the United Methodist Church. And so what I'll do is with our two esteemed guests, I'll just go back and forth and we'll talk about this sacrament. So let's start with you, Dr. Kroger. What is a sacrament in the Catholic Church? Okay, well, you'd have to go back to uh, the, the, the definition of sacraments that, that we as children learned and memorized in the, the, the days of what we call the Baltimore Catechism, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with uh, things like this, but there were a little um, booklet that we all used to, to understand our faith. And the first question would, in that catechism was, was who made me? And the, you have an answer, God made me. Why did God make you? To know him, to love him, to serve him. See, I still remember these things, right? And the, the, the definition of sacraments back in those days was uh, an, a, a, a Christ created the sacraments. They were instituted by Christ to give grace. Now, that's a very straight definition from the theology of pre-Vatican II, which is before 1963, a, a sacrament instituted by Christ to give grace. That implies that, that Jesus instituted all of the seven sacraments that we as Catholics hold. But historically speaking, they all came into codification or um, um, I guess uh, how, how to describe it. They were officially recognized as seven only in the Council of Trent, which is in the 1500s, okay? And the way I can liken this is, is to, um, let's say the constellation Orion in the sky. If you look up at constellation Orion, you can see the stars and you get the impression that they're all on the same plane, right? They're all there like, like it's a bowl and they're all holes poked in the bowl, but that's not the case. They're, one star may be closer, another one may be light years away, another one may be light years closer, but they look like they're all on the same plane. Same thing with sacraments. They all came into being at different times. Um, as I mentioned, the, the Council of Trent codified seven, but there, there were as many as 13 at one point. Some people thought that as an example, washing of feet on our Holy Thursday, you call it Maundy Thursday, that might have been considered to be a sacrament by some churches at one point. But Council of Trent said uh, seven sacraments. Now, let's fast forward to the 20th century. Dutch theologian uh, Edward Schillebex. Now, when I was teaching theology in a Catholic girls' school, I, as a bonus question, I asked them to uh, to spell Schillebex, uh, and it's it's he's Dutch, so it's it's a wacky S C H I L L E B E E C K X. I'm pretty sure is the spelling. But uh, he wrote a wonderful uh, book called Christ: The Sacrament of the Encounter with God, and it was a a, a whole change in sacramental theology. Basically, he said that uh, sacraments were encounters encounters where we meet Christ on certain certain levels. And we have sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. We have sacraments of life, priesthood, holy orders, matrimony. And we also have a sacraments of reconciliation, penance, and also associated with that are anointing of the sick. So uh, sacraments now, uh, since Vatican II, are seen as more relational a relationship. They reveal Christ to us at different moments in our lives. And that's extremely uh, important when we think about Eucharist, because that's that's the one where, where it's literally Christ. For us, it's it's the, the real presence of Christ. 
in um, in the Eucharist. Does that help? It does. I think that's really interesting. I've never heard uh, the metaphor of Orion to talk about the sacraments, so that was really interesting. Nikki, what would you say? So we have a, a phrase that you'll hear kind of like um, it, like a buzzword kind of almost thing with that you hear with Methodists, and we say um, that the sacraments are an outward sign of an inward grace, oh. and then um, an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so that's mm-hmm. um, that's that sounds like really, <laughs> there's a lot in that, but what we're saying is that the sacraments are a sign of something that's happening to you as you experience the grace that you receive, forgiveness and love that you receive from God through Christ. And um, so, that's really the main thing that we use when we talk about sacraments. And, and we only have um, two sacraments by comparison and, and they are instituted by, by Christ. And so that's something that we share in common um, with our Catholic brothers and sisters that um, they are things that we've seen modeled by Christ. And so our, our two sacraments are baptism and communion or the Eucharist. And we have lots of words that we we may also call it, you may also hear it called um, the Holy Supper or the Last Supper or the Holy Meal. Um, but another way we like to talk about it is the Holy Mystery. And so we don't know everything that is going on. Um, it's mm-hmm. not about what we're doing. It's about what God is doing in and with and through us in that moment. So for us, sacraments have a converting element. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean that when you encounter um, the presence of Christ as you receive communion, um, in that encounter or in witnessing baptism, even um, in either of those moments, um, the presence of Christ is so real for us that even if you don't believe in that mm-hmm. moment, you may become a believer because you feel mm-hmm. it so warmly in your heart. And so there is this um, piece of a relational piece with God that happens where there is a converting element and you understand and know that you are forgiven um, and can live anew in that moment. So um, I hope that clarified some of the the differences, but also showed some of the things that we definitely have in common um, in terms of how we understand the sacraments. And I really like the language about encountering Christ and that Christ is revealed um, because I think for us as Methodists, we also experience that as well in uh, in the sacraments. Are are you both aware of the continuing Catholic Methodist dialogue that's going on? No. Are you aware of that? It's been going on since 1966. And uh, if you go, I can share with you the link to uh, the documents uh, that that, uh, are in, and I read the one last night, but there's one document that will interest you. It's called Eucharistic Celebration Converging Theology Divergent Practice. United Methodist Roman Catholic Dialogue. This came out in 1981. And the language that Nikki, you were referring to is found in that, in that uh, document. And I, and I will send you the link um, to it because it, it, it lines up um, the Eucharistic practice of the Catholic Church, specifically the Eucharistic prayer that we, we say every time we, we celebrate. And then it also outlines your Eucharistic uh, um, series of events we, I guess you could call the Eucharistic prayer as well. Yeah. They're remarkably similar. And uh, it's just amazing to see uh, the whole thing about grace. And, and uh, my notion of grace when I was in, in, in grade school is a thing you got. 
And then when I was in seminary, it was it was described as a relationship. It, mm. and it's like a friendship that we're developing now. This is a graced moment because we're mm. engaged with this. And and that's that's what grace is. It's, mm. it's uh, the sacraments help us realize grace at different moments of our life. Yeah, know? very much so. Right. Yeah. Oh, I can understand that's beautiful. Nikki, I'll go to you for the next question. What does the Bible say when we talk about the communion or the Eucharist? So there's a few places that I I go to to understand um, communion for myself. And so that's that the Last Supper with Jesus gathered with the disciples and they break bread together and they share wine together. Um, And Jesus says, do this um, whenever you think of me. This is the meal that we share. And so that's um, that's in the Gospels. But then in John, the Gospel of John, we see um, a different story. And we like the story in John um, that tells us about um, the feeding of the 5,000, I think that's, or the mm-hmm. 500 or the, yes. Yeah, so that's the 5, big feeding meal. It is the 5,000. Okay, good. I have it correct. Um, so when, when we see that feeding, this great meal of people coming together and encountering Christ in that way, that's another um, example of what we call the Last Supper, that um, Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. But for me, I, I like Paul a lot, and that is a lot of our um, ecclesiology and our ecclesial theology, I guess you could say it that way, um, comes from Paul. And 1 Corinthians 11 is an often misinterpreted scripture, but it gives us really a lot of our theological understanding of what it means to um, take communion together. And it talks really importantly about um, dynamics that happen at the communion table. And one of the main dynamics that happened um, in 1 Corinthians with that community was that there were people who were poor and day laborers who couldn't get to the meal as early as the rich folks who were sitting there. And so they got to feast on the great parts of the meal and these poor folks who were coming in um, from a day of work got the meal late and maybe there wasn't even enough for them. And by the time they got there, the rich folks were already drunk on the wine. Um, And so there was just this total abuse of this joyful encounter of Christ. And so um, that is a thing that reminds us about the equity that should happen around the communion table, about um, the inclusion that happens at the communion table, and um, that this meal is a meal for all people, not just the ones who have access and easy access to it, because all people deserve to receive that um, love and grace from Christ. And so for me, 1 Corinthians 11 is particularly important for us to look at communion. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Dr. Kroger, same question. Okay, I'm, uh, yes, I, let's start with the 1 Corinthians 11, which is, it's very interesting because uh, <sighs> you all know this because you, 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 you we're, we're coming to scripture since Vatican II. You guys have been doing scripture since the Wesleys uh, <laughs> and before, right? Uh, this is the earliest account of the Last Supper. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, that's the, and we read this on uh, our Holy Thursday, you call it Maundy Thursday. I don't, I don't know if the, the same readings occur in your, your celebration of, of that um, because it's a different structure, but we, our first reading for that day is, is, is a powerful one from uh, Exodus. It talks about how, how the Passover occurred and how, how the, the priest went out and looked at the new moon and, and determined where Passover was. 
and then we have this reading, which is from the uh, the earliest account of the Last Supper. And then, and, you know, in, in John, you mentioned John, Nikki, but the, the reading that we use in John is is it's not the institution narrative, as you know from John. It's it's the washing of the feet, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's yes. uh, kind of curious. People say, "Why didn't you read the institution narrative on Holy Thursday?" Well, because you're right. about service. That's why it's called mandi, right? Mandatum. Yeah. It's it's like do this, go out and do it. Uh, let's go back to the Corinthians. I. I I didn't put this together until I did some investigating today, but the second half, or, or I shouldn't say second half, but the, the reading that, that uh, occurs after that institution, now yeah. this, uh, the Corinthians reading ends with, um, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. The very next line is, whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord, right? And, and this is something that we will eventually be talking about, what's going on in our country with the United yeah. States bishops and President Biden. They, they kind of go back to this, this phrase. Now, interestingly enough, I, I did a, a little further research and found out that in our lectionary, the, uh, you see Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this, this reading is, is obviously on Holy Thursday, but nowhere else is, is the reading from the, the, um, the second part, Corinthians where it picks up. 11, 27 to 30. It doesn't occur in our lectionary at all, whether on Sunday or in daily. Now, you would think that it would because yeah. of, of the nature of the Eucharist and the desire to, to maintain a certain amount of purity, uh, but it doesn't occur. It's, and that, and we, can, we can look at that later on. The other uh, readings that I, I did a little thing, I looked, went, went to my trusty synopsis and found the uh, institution narrative in, in Matthew, it's Matthew 26, in Mark, it's Mark 14, and Luke, it's um, Luke 22. They're all pretty parallel, but again, we, we mentioned that John's reading doesn't, doesn't have, uh, have an institution, it has that service thing, but as you were talking, Nikki, I didn't think about the, the, the um, multiplication of loaves and fishes, but, and, and, but I, I, I just thought, you know, the story of Emmaus is, is extremely uh, uh, revelatory about the Eucharist. And a lot of um, scripture scholars think that that was a, 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 a reading that was used as catechism yeah. for the mass or the, mm -hmm. the celebration of the Eucharist because the, the four elements are gathering, telling the story, breaking the bread, and then going forth in service. And it's a tremendous mm -hmm. catechesis of, uh, of Eucharist if we can, can understand the scriptures. What I want to ask both of you now is how do people receive communion? How do they receive it in the Catholic church, in the Methodist church? And so, and also what are the parameters for someone to receive it in both of the churches? And Dr. Kroger, we can start with you. Okay. Uh, in the old days, you would kneel at a railing called the communion rail and the, uh, the priest and the altar server would come up to you and, and in Latin say this long phrase. I wish I had thought about it. I would have given you the entire long phrase. It's uh, corpus domini on and on and on. I wish I'd, I'd had it. We could, we can re, we could, uh, I can record it and we can insert it here. But, <laughs> but uh, eventually, it, you know, with all the people in those days, this is, we're talking the 60s, people were just you know, masses. At my home parish, the mass schedule was uh, 6.30, 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, and 12.30. They didn't have vigil masses, they weren't allowed, and they didn't have nighttime masses on Sunday. So those were all crammed into Sunday morning. And as, as I recall, all of them were packed. So we had these waves of people kneeling at the communion rail 
the priest and the server, me, we would we would um, walk by and then we would have, I'm going to use my phone as, a, as a, it had this thing with a stick on it called a patent. And you would have to put that patent underneath the chin so that mm -hmm. no crumbs would fall on, onto the floor. You would catch them on the, um, on the patent. Now, now, for your viewers' sake, as a, as a kind of a crazy altar server, if I knew somebody that was in the, in the, in the line, I would give them a gentle tap here, <laughs> which was not exactly the most uh, uh, sanctimonious thing I could do. But you had to dance with the priest because you, know, you had the, the feet and you had to move down the aisle in order to do this. Well, then, then we were out allowed to uh, receive communion standing up. So that got rid of the, the patent and the priest would stand there in, in, in English. He would, instead of saying uh, um, Corpus Christi, which is the body of Christ, he would say in, in English, the body of Christ. And then we would give communion the priest only. Okay, so, so uh, because of these throngs of people, as I recall, when I was a musician in, in, uh, in those days, we'd have like four or five communion songs because mm -hmm. it would take that long for the priest or his assistant to help with communion. And in the seminary back in the, let's say 1973, they allowed seminarians. We, 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 we changed, long story, we changed our, our ordination style and, and we, we had a thing called candidacy. Then we were, had ministries of, 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 of acolyte, ministry of acolyte and the ministry of lector. Now the Pope is opening these up to uh, lay people, which is fascinating, okay? But we had ministry of, of uh, we had candidacy, that's when you run for priest, literally, okay? Candidacy, uh, ministry of acolyte and lector. Because we needed ministers of communion in parishes, they threw that order out and they made us acolytes. <laughs> and so we could go into parishes and help with communion. Only seminarians could do this in those days. And then, and then as, we, as we say, the, the bottom fell out of the acolyte market and they created Eucharistic ministers in parishes so that this could happen in and that this is still the case today we have we have actually they're called extraordinary ministers of the eucharist meaning that in an extraordinary case when we don't have enough priests or deacons or acolytes these lay people can function as ministers of communion and it helped greatly reduce the time for receiving communion because in the catholic church every time you celebrate mass communion is available every time it's it's not like certain certain uh, other churches where it's it's once a month or whatever, you can you have a communion service perhaps. Um, and so this is the way it, it's done. And, and communion is, is it used to be received only on the tongue. And now you, you create what we call a throne. You, you place your hand above, above the other hand. The priest says the body of Christ makes eye contact, puts the host on the, on the palm, and then you receive the host. And in the pandemic, that is the only way we, we were allowed to do it because of uh, sanitization and, and, and process. So that's how we receive communion. Now, at Vatican II said, said you can also uh, have a chalice and you can consecrate enough uh, wine into the precious blood of Christ. Christ is present for us in the host, okay? Body and blood of Christ. Body and blood of Christ are both present in the host and in the cup, what we call the cup, the chalice, which has the consecrated um, uh, precious blood. We don't say wine, we call it the precious blood of Christ. So you could, so you could receive, uh, and until the pandemic, we were allowed to give communion under both kinds. And you would receive communion under the form of bread. And also you were able, if you chose, to receive it from the, uh, from the cup. It was a common cup. We don't have the little tiny cups that 
So I don't know if you guys do the, 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 the small cups, but um, or the Baptists, they have they have grape. They use grape juice. They don't use wine. But we we have a common cup, and you would wipe the cup, and and then the next person would receive. Now, uh, some people didn't want to do that because uh, um, you know it's like, well, we can't do it now. The chances of that coming back are, are slim for a long time because of the pandemic. But uh, people said, well, you you know you. You can't, you can't do that because uh, what about germs? Well, here's the thing about this. Uh, the, the wine that we used to use, or we still use, but the priest still uses it, it has the highest alcohol content ever. <laughs> and any germ that is in that wine that, that survives it deserves to live because it's, that's why it has all this high alcohol content so that it would in fact kill any germs that might be there. But again, that's how we receive communion and it's evolved over the years. Now, way, way back, if you want to get into the historical, there was a time when, when people didn't want to receive communion because they felt unworthy. Now that unworthiness issue we can talk about later, but Middle Ages communion reception declined so far that the church had to put in a requirement to do what was called Easter duty, quotation marks, Easter duty, air quotes here. And so that's still in, 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 on the books. And the church said, you have to receive communion. It said, it said, you have to go to confession and receive communion once a year. That was because it was, people weren't going. They weren't going at all. And um, so uh, that, that's, that's historical and also the practice that we do now. So hope it's not too long for you. You can always cut it out. <laughs> no, that's fine. Reverend Howard, um, Nikki, same question for you. So um, there are lots of ways that you can receive communion. Um, we do have that the only people who can bless communion are um, persons who are licensed in that local church setting for that local church or who are um, commissioned, which would be like myself. And so I'm commissioned to administer the sacraments to my pastoral setting, which is the conference. So um at an event that would be in my ministry setting, I could serve communion, but I couldn't go to any random church mm -hmm. and um, actually say the words um, that bless the um, communion elements. Mm -hmm. um, it would have to be within my, my setting, but anybody who is ordained um, is allowed to officially say all of the words and um, to bless it anywhere. And so that's, that's kind of the, the way that we explain it, but anybody can serve communion. And so mm -hmm. um, you often will see, you know, see confirmants serving communion when they get confirmed mm -hmm. or children serving communion on Children's Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, and an ability and intellect doesn't matter. And there um, was a church that I used to go to where a person who um, had pretty severe mental illness and all kinds of other um, mental inabilities was able to still serve communion, right? It didn't matter that he might not speak the same way we do or that he might not understand everything. Um, he shared in communion and served communion with us. Um, and then when it comes to what the bread and the, the grape juice or the wine or, or what it may be, what it looks like, um, we don't have a lot of parameters around that either. Mm -hmm. There is a story um, that my mom tells of receiving communion in South Texas with tortillas and Coke um, because that was the food of their people mm -hmm. and that's what Jesus served to his disciples. And so mm -hmm. that's what they did. And so 
um, you'll hear funny stories like that about random things that people use mm -hmm. for communion um, that are bread-like and drink-like and not quite <laughs> what we would expect. And that's okay for Methodists because mm -hmm. it's not about what we're doing, it's about what God is doing. And so um, we do allow for some wide variety of things. <laughs> and um, I would leave that to the bishop to decide when <laughs> somebody strayed too far um, mm -hmm. in terms of what those elements look like. Um, but what you'll see commonly in a lot of United Methodist churches is King's Hawaiian bread and grape juice. Um, and most of the time it's Welch's. And so that's what you traditionally see. Um, I think what is important and valuable to us is the experience that you have in receiving it. And so whether that's kneeling um, at the altar or if that is another thing that you'll see a lot of times in groups, um, people in a big circle and they pass the bread around and they offer it to one another as they mm -hmm. pass and then they pass the cup around. Um, so it's this exchange of everyone serving everyone as they, they receive communion. Um, so, you know, any way really that you receive it on, on um, Easter, you'll see at some of our larger churches, like 20 communion stations spread out across the sanctuary. Um, and, and so it's, it really is, um, how you, how you want to receive it in your congregation and what works for you in your setting. And, um, that's some of the beauty of being Methodist, but probably really confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of our Virginia folks, if they went to a church that wasn't serving Kings Hawaiian would get real upset. I know that's, that's what we're used to here in Virginia. Um, on World Communion Sunday, a lot of our churches, Methodist churches, like to put out bread from all over the world. Oh, wow. And so you'll get to see, those are some really nice um, altar settings. If you um, check out what churches are doing on World Communion Sunday, I think that's in October. Um, and you can see, you, we had, um, I can't remember what it's called right now. It's Ethiopian bread. But um, oh, yes, yes. we very had thin, very thin bread. Yeah, we had that for communion one year um, at one of our churches. And so it's it's just kind of what what makes sense and what fits in your setting. Okay. And so there's some freedom around that. I, I think that tells you a little bit about how we receive it. Um, what's important to remember also is that the, the history for us Methodists is that um, there weren't enough clergy to give communion once a week. Mm -hmm. And so we had circuit riders who would make it to each church maybe once a month sometimes fewer than that. Um, but that's why we have a tradition still of only having communion on the first Sunday of the month. There are lots of churches that are choosing to not continue that as Methodists and serve communion every single Sunday um, or serve communion at special services during the week. Um, there is no reason why, at least for Methodists, we don't serve communion at every service. And John Wesley, um, of course, our heralded founder of our church, um, he, he was very much in favor of serving communion every time he gathered. And so um, we just have this old kind of tradition from a while ago, from decades, decades, uh, centuries ago, where we, where we continue to just do the, the once a month, but there is no reason that you have to do it once a month. You can do it as many times okay. as you want. Which I didn't hear you say, do you have communion every week? So some churches do okay and it depends on that setting um in my last um parish setting that i was in i 
served communion once a week in one service and once a month in the other service. Okay. Okay. So it just depended on that service. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we have we have communion. We have uh, the possibility of of a mass celebration of right. the Eucharist every day. We have daily right. mass and Sunday mass. The only day we don't actually celebrate mass is Good Friday. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the the only way to honor it is to take it away. Right. So we, we do give out communion on Good Friday, but we don't celebrate a mass on Good Friday. So, uh, Nikki, uh, uh, is all of this that you're talking about, is, all, is that found in the Book of Discipline or is that a separate document? So a lot of our kind of ordering stuff about who gets to serve communion and how it's served, that is um, in the Book of Discipline. Okay. Um, but... The other, there's another um, book that we use called the Book of Worship, and that has more instructions. Okay. Um, and then uh, in 2000, there was um, a commission to look at the sacraments in the Methodist Church. And so there's two books. Um, the one on the Eucharist is called This Holy Mystery. Okay. And so that book, um, it's Gail Felton. I have it actually right here. Gail Carlton Felton. Mm -hmm. And so her work brought a team together. And you can get those books and they have um, a study guide with them. And so oh, it's right. like a, a class you can take uh, or teach with your um, with your local church. Yeah, I think that document that I'm referred to uh, references that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's fascinating. It's interesting to see to see how how we, we both celebrate this in, the, in a kind of a different way. Yeah. So our next question is going to take us into the realm of the current debate that's going on in the Catholic Church. And so I'll let either one of you answer as you feel led. So the next question is, what does it mean to deny someone communion? Um, how and when has this been practiced? And how has this happened in either one of our churches? Okay. Um, you want me to go first? get us started um okay. just because i think okay there's probably less for me to say um so methodists practice what we call or i should say united methodists practice what we call an open table and so that means that anybody is welcome to come to the table i think it's important to look back at first corinthians though again what we do the the liturgy that we say um the great thanksgiving is said so that we take time to reflect on our own sinfulness as we prepare to receive communion. It doesn't mean that we'll stop somebody from receiving communion because we do believe that they are discerning in their hearts and God is working on their hearts um, as they receive the sacrament. And so um, we do practice an open table. Now, what is important to remember is that there have been times when communion has been denied and um, of course, not within the Methodist Church, outside of the Methodist Church, John Wesley um, did deny communion to Sophie Hopke, and that was um, a woman who spurned him and um, <laughs> he wanted to be engaged to her and she turned him down, and he got in a lot of trouble for it. It, it did not go well for him. Um, he basically had to run away. But um, <laughs> So it did not work for him. You can look up the story. It's pretty accessible out there on Google. Wow, wow, um, yeah, but so our own our own John Wesley, before his heart was strangely warmed, um, he he did have uh, this unfortunate incident. Um, but one of the things that we have seen is that there has been some controversy about membership and who who can be a member and 
we do ask people to repent of their sins in our membership vows. Um, and so there is some question about if, if someone who is egregiously sinning can actually be denied membership in the Methodist church. Mm -hmm. And the judicial council ruled on that. I feel like it's maybe 10 plus years old, but the judicial council did rule on that and said that if a pastor does feel that this person is not willing to um, discontinue their sin, they can deny membership. And mm -hmm. I do think that makes you wonder if they could deny someone the ability to receive communion, even though we are staunchly against that. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I would say is that this bleeds into our, this particular case with the Judicial Council bleeds into our debate about human sexuality. I was just gonna mention that, yes. Yeah, and so I think that's where we we see a challenge, but if we're being true to our open table, um, even if you disagree with allowing membership of persons who are um, LGBTQ+, plus, um, you think that, I do think that you would still see the open table as a converting place and you wouldn't want to bar anyone from receiving that. But I couldn't speak for that perspective. That's just my own theory right. on that. So hopefully, I think that um, kind of answers it. We, we should never, communion should never be denied. Even, um, I think the other, the nuance would, that's important is people with um, different kinds of mental capabilities. Um, somebody who, I encountered this really particularly in a nursing home, um, a woman who, who could eat, but really wasn't present. Mm -hmm. um, can she receive communion and, and understand what she is, is receiving? Is there a question about whether or not she can experience God in that moment? And um, my experience was always that the ritual was familiar, which meant for me that God was present. And so um, I don't have the ability to discern that, but that's another question. If somebody has the um, capability of understanding what, what they're experiencing in communion. So that question does come up too. We've had experiences of people bringing communion to Alzheimer, Alzheimer's patient mm -hmm. in, um, let's say, a memory care unit, and they have no concept of what's going on. I mean, they're really deeply um, uh, disturbed or, or sinking into that unfortunate disease. And as soon as they see the, the host, they launch into the Our Father as if they, they don't have any problems with their mental capability. And they know it, it's, it's like, it's so ingrained. It's such a, a primordial thing for them that they immediately know what they're doing and the person gives, is giving them the Eucharist and they receive it. And then right afterwards, they go back into their state. It's, it's uh, an amazing thing because it, that, that connection, that thread of connection is still with them, even, even in that situation. Uh, denial of, of communion. Now, if, if you, there are a ton of, of articles and, and I'm, I come from um, the, the, uh, the side, I'm a balanced person. I'm, I'm not a radical on either side, but I, I, I tend towards, towards uh, not doing it. You know, from the perspective of, of some of the bishops in, in our in our country, uh, and they're they, they're being faced with something. Something has caused them to backtrack from this. They're not exactly uh, on the same uh, page uh, where they were earlier in the summer. And I will send you the links to. There's at least seven or eight articles that from the National Catholic Reporter, and uh, a very balanced uh, a, a approach to this whole thing about what what they're trying to do. 
the, there are a couple of problems here and which people have pointed out the point the problem is that is that you know catholics are under an obligation to attend mass it's a it's a serious obligation they are required all of us are required to attend mass on sunday now because of uh cultural things it's just that that whole obligation seems to have fallen out of of the the, uh, the worldview of, of many catholics we'll call them millennials uh, and you two are probably close to that that age bracket where you know what i'm saying what me oh please um so the joke is that that you know for the pandemic that the the obligation to attend mass on sunday has been has been uh relaxed because you can't get to church but my 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 statement was well, the the people have have self dispensed from this for many years because obviously they're not coming to church they come to religious education but you don't see them on sunday that's a that's another problem okay that's another another issue so my my point in bringing this up is the bishops have realized that there's a lot bigger problems than denying communion there's a whole problem of uh, people in our faith understanding what the eucharist is it, i'm sure you're familiar with the pew study that was done a few years ago that revealed that only 31 percent of all catholics believe that it's the real presence of christ so it, this is a big problem because this is this is the central sacrament of the catholic church so the bishops have realized that they have got to build up an understanding of eucharist before they start going into these other radical things. So uh, again, I'll send you the, uh, on the on the US Catholic Bishops website, there's a question and answer about this whole controversy and it explains what it's about now. And, and what they're going to do now is to kind of uh, develop a whole pastoral plan on catechesis of the Eucharist. Now you would think that's not necessary, but of course it is because uh, it, it's like, how do you explain, explain this? And I, I could give you the, the whole thing in, in, in an instant, but let's talk a little bit about uh, denial. Uh, it, it's kind of like a there's there's certain things that we we point to as Catholics that we would ask people to consider, and one of them is the nature of sin. What is a, a, a notion of sin? Now, going back to when I was uh, a kid, the whole concept of sin was was uh, you know mortal sin was very grievous, deadly sin, mortal sin. Okay. And then there's venial sin, which is less less problematic than mortal sin. And uh, they explained it in the Baltimore Catechism, like with milk bottles. Mortal sin milk bottle was completely black. I mean, you would never drink that milk, right? Uh, the venial sin bottle had spots in it, so it was less severe. And that's the way they explain sin. And then you go to confession, and the the black bottle turns white because you. And I'm not. I, I you know, you're going to show this to a lot of people. I'm not trying to make. I'm not trying to make fun of this. I'm just explaining what the situation was back in the '60s. Vatican II latched onto a much, much more, I guess, holistic notion of sin coming from a perspective of of um, the Old Testament. The Old Testament view of sin. There's two aspects, and, and consider um, you're, you're, you as a human being, a human man or a human woman, and you're trying to do your best in life. It's a much more positive approach rather than the, the, the other understanding. It's, it's two things. One is missing the mark or falling short. Now, you may have come across those concepts in your study of, of scripture. Missing the mark, you're, you're, you're a, a marksman and you try over and over again to stay on the straight and narrow, but you can't quite make the mark. Like an archer 
okay? Uh, or falling short, you're a runner and you just can't, you know, you're trying your best. You're trying to do your best, but you fall short. So when you miss the mark or you fall short, then you have to reevaluate where you're going and, and try to make amends. And that's what the sacrament of reconciliation is all about. Growing up, we had to go to confession um, on Saturday before we went to mass on Sunday to receive the Eucharist. We had to go in, in what we called it the state of grace, which again, it's the holist, it's not the holistic notion of relationship. It's it's a different, different concept. <clears throat> so uh, if you didn't do that, then in those days you would self pull yourself back from receiving communion because you wanted to uh, to do that. Now look at what Pope Francis has said today, he says, uh, Eucharist is, is not a prize for those who are good. It is food for the journey. Now, he's, he's, he's quoting St. Ambrose. It's not just coming out of his head. He's quoting St. Ambrose, and he's quoting the Eucharistic theology of St. Augustine, which is powerfully, powerfully uh, uh, put. Here's a man who, who was, uh, was, was had fathered an illegitimate child and was, was uh, just in love with sexuality for his whole life. His poor mother, Monica, prayed for his conversion. And his, his prayer his prayer was, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, okay? And that's, that's, that's true. That's St. Augustine. And finally, he is converted, and he writes this wonderful, wonderful, these great sermons. And he talks about become what you, you consume. When you receive the Eucharist, become that. Become that. That's what you, you know, you, you receive the body and blood of Christ. You need to become that. And that's, that's, that's. Um, Methodist theology right there. You go out and do the and do the thing. It's like you are now leaving the mission fields, right? You see those signs. That's Saint Agat, Saint Augustine, and that's that's what Pope Francis is pointing to. He's, he's he's saying it's not a prize for being good. It's food for the journey. Now, in in uh, in Catholic theology, there's a there's a term in Latin called viaticum with a big V. Viaticum in Latin means uh, viata. Via means a journey, and cum c u m means go with, with the journey. So giving the Eucharist to somebody who's sick is giving them strength for their journey to go to the, go to the Father and see God face to face. But that's what the Eucharist is for us in, in the Catholic Church. It's, it's food for the journey. That's what he's saying. Some people disagree with that. Some people say that, that we, should, we, should, uh, we should have a, have a, a stricter uh, uh, guidelines for who could receive communion. Uh, one, one, two stories quickly, uh, uh, stories about when I was in the in seminary and bringing communion to somebody in the hospital. Um, and, and I go into this one room and the nurse who was with me, I was a Eucharistic minister, said she doesn't speak a word of English, she's from Greece. So Holy Spirit moment says to me, so I said to her, Kyrie eleison, which means, of course, you know, Lord have mercy. The eyes light up, she starts to cry. And I hold up the Eucharist and I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm batting a thousand here. So I'll hit her with a Christe Eleison. And it was like, oh my gosh. So, so that revelation and the connection of that host was, was a, a transforming moment for that woman. You know, it, it's just a powerful, uh, a powerful thing to, to understand how that can, how that can be, uh, uh, you know, connection, that kind of connection. So, um, the other, the other aspect is, is someone who's divorced and remarried in the Catholic Church, they're prevented from receiving the, the sacraments. Now, that's, that's an unfortunate situation, but I also function in my, in my parish life here as an as a, uh, annulment advocate. I'm like a, a, a lawyer, you know, and I'm more like a, if you ever watch the old Perry Mason 
television show or you know there's a guy he's he's got a guy he hired paul drake to do do investigations right you probably have no idea what i'm talking about but <laughs> if you see reruns you'll see paul drake oh paul go investigate this. You know, so my job is to investigate and help them come to an understanding of what went wrong with that marriage so that the diocese can say that that consent was never given uh, adequately, and therefore the marriage never took place. That's what an annulment is. When those people receive that annulment and they come to the Eucharist for the first time in 40 years, okay, that is a powerful moment. It's a, it, and the annulment process, controversial for some people, but the annulment process is a tremendous healing uh, experience for people in that situation. And it, they, they've self, um, um, you know, exempted themselves from receiving the Eucharist. Uh, another story is, I love doing this too. This is, this is, I also work with our RCIA process where people become Catholic. Uh, it, it, you see people in, in church who, who um, with their families, they'll, they'll step aside and the family will go up and receive the Eucharist, but they, they don't. So I always, I always go up and ask why? Just because I, 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 there may be some reason that they're doing it, they don't realize that they can receive communion. You know, if they're divorced but not remarried, they can go to communion. They can receive the Eucharist. So this one lady had been doing this for 50 years, and I said, "Why, why don't you receive communion?" She says, "Because I'm not Catholic." I said, "Well, don't you want to become Catholic?" Well, oh yeah. So it's just in the asking that, that uh, and, and she became Catholic and uh, received the Eucharist. It was a, a powerful moment for her whole family because, because of that. And, and so those stories, um, another quick story, this is not quick, sorry folks. Um, this is about the real presence. And we had a catechumen one time who was, uh, we were talking about, we test Catholics believe that's the body and blood of Christ. Uh, and, and she said, really? I said, yeah, we really do. And, and this is interesting. She said, I've watched those people walk up to communion. I know they don't believe that. Now, what, what kind of witness is that giving to somebody who wants to become Catholic? So I use that story when I would train Eucharistic ministers. And I said, you have got to, by the way you distribute the Eucharist, you've got to show people that you believe this is, this is the body and blood of Christ. So does that does that help on, on, understand the whole the whole situation we're dealing with now, and, and where Pope Francis is staying standing in? You know, and a lot of bishops have have uh, not a majority. A majority of them want to want to deny communion to uh, to uh, certain individuals because of their beliefs. But I, I have to ask, and I would ask this if I was standing in front of all those bishops, who taught you theology in the seminary, really? Because this theology is not is not Vatican II theology. This is, uh, you know, we have to we have to respect the Eucharist, and we have to respect uh, coming to it, and we have to educate people that if if in fact, the, the, you know, your beliefs are different than ours, then maybe you should think about this. But you know, we're not bouncers here. Uh, Jesus is, uh, is is present. He calls us to the table. Um, how do how do we respond to that call? Exactly. Well, I've really appreciated this conversation, this interfaith conversation between the two of you to hear more. Is there anything else about the current debate around communion or the sacrament that you want to leave our listeners with? And that this is for either of you. Okay. I do have one thing that's important, just in case people don't 
we understand the nuance that we're talking about. I don't know that listeners will, they may. Um, we United Methodists don't believe that the body and blood of Christ become Christ's body and blood. We see that portion as a remembrance. Mm -hmm. We also recognize the sacrifice that Christ made. We give thanks for it. Um, there's six things. I'm not going to remember them all. Oh, um, it's a fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with um, encountering God's presence with Christ. Um, and, and it is by the action of the Holy Spirit that we come to know that grace. And then there's this other thing that's really important um, for United Methodists, at least. And I don't know if this is, I'm curious if this is also a Catholic understanding um, but we believe that there is an eschatological mm -hmm. encounter at the communion table. And by that, I mean that those who have gone before are part of that. The great cloud of witnesses gathers mm -hmm. as we take communion, that mm -hmm. we are reminded as we take communion, that we will all feast together with Christ at his heavenly banquet. Um, and we say that language at mm -hmm. the end of the Thanksgiving prayer, once everyone has received communion. And so there is this reminder that um, even though we are here now, there is an already kind of not yet that is present. And so um, we're reminded that that the promise of life um, doesn't end with death and that life continues in that meal. And mm -hmm. um and I don't, I, that's something that I don't know if Catholics share or not. Um, and it's very possible that, that you do, but it, it's just something that's important and valuable for Methodists. We, uh, in our creed, we, we refer to that as the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. We believe in yeah. the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So and we all, say the same oh, words. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that, you know, in the Nicene Creed, we, sell it, we say that every, uh, every Sunday. And it, it's, uh, it's it, you know, I, I'll sit back sometimes and I, I can imagine those those fellowship of saints just being there floating around or, or whatever they do, <laughs> just in the church as celebrate, you know, and there. And, and of course, the other thing, the other side of this is, is that we believe that um, the, you know, when, when Jewish people celebrate Passover, it's the Passover. It's the real Passover. It's like time dilation. It's time right. travel. It's the real Passover, but, but brought up to date. And, and celebrate and, that, and we believe as Catholics that that's the same thing. It's the priest is standing for Christ. The altar uh, that's in the sanctuary is is the body of Christ. It's, it represents Christ because it, and it's dressed. Yeah. It's dressed in, in in white garment as as it's his burial shroud. The altar cloth is his burial shroud, and that's why it's on the that's on it's on the altar because uh, because of that. So so first thing the priest does when he comes in is kiss the altar. Why is he kiss the altar? He's kissing the body of Christ represented by that also and so that that is uh you know we, we definitely believe in the communion of saints because uh you know i just lost three people this this past month uh, very dear friends and uh you know they, they're just they're there they're still here they're still with us in a different realm but uh the other thing i i would like to to, to talk about just briefly at the end here is is epiclesis yeah thank you um it sounds like a sneeze but it's <laughs> There's three aspects for our Eucharistic mm -hmm. prayer, and it's, yeah. it's curious because over the years we we wonder where when does the body when do when do the elements become the body of Christ, and and one the first one is called the epiclesis, and you'll see it's coming to a Catholic mass, 
the priest puts his hands over the chalice and the bread, the bread and wine. And that's when that's the, the prayer of the Holy Spirit coming down, calling of the Holy Spirit down upon the gifts. Does it happen there? Yeah, or does it do happen, the same thing. Right. Does it happen there or does it happen at the words of institution? This is my body, this is my blood, the words of institution. Or does it happen at the after that's over with at the epiclesis? Oh no, I'm sorry, the anamnesis, the not the right. anamnesis. Uh, which is happens afterwards, which is the remembrance. Mm -hmm. Now, now this is this is uh, our our friend Len Sweet um, got into this, and in, 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 I loved his insights because in Greek, uh, and you know, you, you, if you watch soap operas, one of the one of the, the key elements of soap operas is you get hit on the head and you forget everything. So that's amnesia, right? Amnesia, forgetting. But if you put an in front of the word in Greek, it means it means literally unforgetting. Okay, or remembering, unforgetting. Yeah. But, I, but Sweet says we need to dwell on the unforgetting because that's why we go to church every week, you know, as Catholics or as Methodists or anything. We go to church every week because we forget who we are. And we need to be reminded who we are through the celebration of the Eucharist. And, and this, is, this is the whole thing of, of Emmaus, right? Mm -hmm. When they break the bread, oh my God, it's, yeah. it's you, right? That's that's the anamnesis, which uh, you've all seen the movie Ratatouille, Pixar movie Ratatouille. Yes. <laughs> to me, and it, it gives me chills. The first time I saw it, I was in tears watching this because it's the scene where Anton Ego, who's, you know, I am the food critic. <laughs> Anton Ego is sitting at the table and um, the, the waiter, I forget his name, waiter comes out and serves him the Ratatouille and, and you know what happens. Powerful. To yeah. me, that, that, that's the most amazing explanation of anamnesis I've ever seen. Yeah. Because uh, on, on many levels, because you notice he drops the pen. He's no longer, you know, I'm the, he's, he's melted away because of that pat, powerful memory of, of kindness that his mother shared with him. And isn't that, isn't that the way it is with when we hopefully receive communion? It's, it's that memory, the, the grace of Jesus touching us and saying it's okay. It's okay. I'm with you always. So I want to thank both of our guests for this conversation and the chance for us to share our differences and our similarities. Um, and this, we are sharing a, a condensed version on our podcast, but we will have the full conversation at our website at www.baumc.org backslash digital hub. And I'll also share any resources from our two guests so that you can learn more from our conversation. So thank you both for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you.